Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek, and today I'll be speaking to Jimmy Maher, the author of The Future Was Here, The Commodore Amiga, part of MIT's Platform Studies series. Jimmy Maher is an independent scholar and writer living in Norway. Jimmy Maher, welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. Thank you. I think it's fair to say that most people today have not been around an Amiga 1000. So if you were to give us one and we were to pick it up and look at it, what would we notice? Well, I think you would, uh, first of all, be surprised at just how nice the machine still looks today. Um, it was a really, really stylish design. Um, in some ways, maybe not the most practical design, and I get into that a little bit in the book. Uh, but it's just a really, really nice-looking computer. I actually, when I was talking with the MIT Press about the cover art for the book, I actually said, I need to have an Amiga 1000 on the cover because... That is that is just still a nice-looking computer today and still my favorite model of the Amiga just um, from appearance. So what is it about the Amiga 1000 that so sparked your interest? I mean, in the book you talk about soon after the 1000, the Amiga 500 and 2000 came out. But uh, a lot of the chapters of the book seem to be talking about the technical specifications, particularly around the Amiga 1000. Um. I'm not sure I would say that they really deal exclusively with the Amiga 1000. Um, the 500 and the 2000, which came out two years after the 1000 in 1987, um, they were essentially a repackaging of the technology that was originally in the 1000. Um, as, I, as I said, the 1000 is a really nice-looking machine, but in some ways it's uh, doesn't didn't serve anybody that terribly well um, because if you were sort of a power user who wanted a space, you know, for slots, uh, for expansion cards, for extra memory, for uh, possibly faster processors, and so on, uh, the 1000, which was in this very small sort of um, streamlined case, it really didn't give you that. And yet, if you were just somebody who was more of a casual user and just wanted to maybe use the Amiga to play games, um, that was also, maybe the 1000 wasn't the best for that because it was uh, quite expensive. And um, it wasn't really, uh, it, it wasn't really so suitable for sort of, you know, hooking up in the bedroom and um, having your friends over and, and playing um, it just it, it it its look was more of a sort of um, artistic um, boutique kind of a computer, so um, it really didn't fit anybody's needs all that well. Which is one of those paradoxical things about the Amiga that it looked great, but you know it didn't serve anybody that well. So um, then the five with the five hundred and the two thousand, what Commodore did, and in the book I actually say this is maybe the smartest thing they ever did with the Amiga. Um, they repackaged the technology into a version that was looked very the 500 looked very much like the Commodore 64 um it was kind of a Commodore 64 on steroids you might say um it was a, a small package very rugged easy to sort of tote around under your arm you know to take to your friend's house or or what have you and um really served that sort of lower budget gaming market well and then the 2000 um, was the professional level machine that was used by many artists, um, by many musicians, um, especially by many people working in video. The Amiga was just pioneered desktop video in a in just an enormous way, and um, so it really kind of reconfigured the machine to hit sort of the two main markets that were 
uh, probably going to be interested in it in the first place. But most of what I write in the book really applies to the complete Amiga line. It's not it's not exclusive to the 1000 or the 500 or the 2000 for that matter. Um, it's very because they they are essentially when you drill past the outward appearance and um, you know the some of the expansion possibilities and so on, they're essentially the same machine. You know, we've been talking about the Commodore Amiga, but they were at one point two separate companies. Amiga existed before Commodore. Could you talk about some of the people who are original Amiga employees? What were they trying to do with that first machine? Uh, yes, um, the man who pretty much everybody refers to as the father of the Amiga. Uh, he was a hardware engineer by the name of Jay Miner. Um, I have to say was, unfortunately, because he actually passed away in the mid-90s of kidney disease at quite a young age. Um, Jay Miner, even if the Amiga had never been created, never been sold, um, would have a huge, hugely important uh, legacy with personal computers and with game consoles. It was actually Jay Miner who was the main designer behind the Atari VCS, uh, the first game console from Atari, which is incidentally also the subject of another book in the Platform Studies series by Nick Montford and Ian Bogost. And after that machine, he designed Atari's first real computers, um, the Atari 400 and the Atari 800. And... There is actually a lot of similarities between the 400 and the 800 and his later design, the Amiga. Uh, his, his, his design philosophy was very similar. But after creating those machines, uh, Jay Miner actually left Atari. Um, many people were leaving at around this time because the management was perceived as being very uninterested in innovation and very unfriendly toward their employees by this point. So he spent a couple of years actually designing pacemaker devices for a medical devices company. And at that point, he was coaxed to return to the world of um, consumer electronics uh, for this startup, which was called Amiga Incorporated. And um, their goal was originally to produce the next generation game console. Uh, this was in 1982 that they, the company was formed. And, um, of course, at that time, uh, home video games were huge, and they envisioned creating the successor to the Atari VCS console. But what happened was that they, as they were in the midst of this development work, um, something called the Great Video Game Crash of 1983 happened, and uh, video game console sales and uh, sales of the games themselves just absolutely fell through the floor. And Atari, which was, of course, the king of that market, just imploded. Um, Atari had been the fastest-growing company in American history up to that time, and they were probably the fastest shrinking afterward. And so um, with the market suddenly gone that they had anticipated reaching, they looked around and said, well, you know, this would make a really, really fine personal computer. And so they reconfigured the technology to work with a keyboard. They designed a proper operating system for the machine. And what had been anticipated as the Amiga Game Console became the Amiga Personal Computer um, later on after, after Commodore acquired the company. Um, 
by 1984, the Amiga technology was quite far along, but the company was just literally running out of money. Um, several of the senior people there had actually mortgaged their house just to keep the lights on and to keep the doors open, so to speak. And so they were desperate by this point to find a buyer. And there was actually something of a bidding war between Atari and Commodore over who would acquire this technology. And in the end, um, Commodore actually won the day. And they were able to buy Amiga. Whole, they were able to buy Amiga and um, rebrand the technology as the Commodore Amiga. There were actually quite a number of lawsuits in the aftermath of this that flew back and forth between Atari and Commodore. Um, Atari accusing Commodore of negotiating in bad faith and so on. But um, the die was cast by that point, and so uh, the Amiga became the Commodore Amiga. So let's go back to 1984 and put ourselves in Commodore's shoes. Uh, their primary competition was IBM and Apple. Uh, what was it about this machine that made them think, you know, we really need to acquire this company? Well, at the time, you have to understand Commodore's position. Um, Commodore was the sort of reigning king of the home computer market. So, um, their, of course, their bread and butter machine was the Commodore 64, which everybody remembers. And um, Apple and IBM were kind of serving a different market at this time. They were, they were selling much more expensive machines. Um, in January of 1984, I actually saw the introduction of the Apple Macintosh, which was, I think one of the few machines that has a claim to possibly being as revolutionary as the Amiga was on its on its introduction, and um, so Commodore was kind of in a different market. They weren't really so directly competing with IBM and Apple, uh, but if you wanted to say what was so amazing about the Amiga, um, really the one word answer is the graphics. Um, I'll just run through very quickly some technical specifications here. Um, you had a palette of 4,096 colors available to you. Um, you could do a screen resolution of up to 640 by 400 pixels. Um, actually, you could go a little bit beyond that using something called Overscan, which I get into the book, but we'll keep it simple here. Um, you had four-channel stereo sound, so you could, and this was digital sound, so rather than being just a tone generator or something, you could actually record real-world audio and play it back in stereo on this machine. And um, so just the, the, you can see why this would be so exciting for a company like Commodore, whose bread and butter with the Commodore 64 had been games. And um, something I get into a little bit in the book is that it was kind of, in a way, a bad fit for Commodore because the machine by necessity, was a little bit more expensive when it first came out in 1985 because the technology was so advanced. And so um, Commodore, which was used to serving this low-end market, you know, selling uh, machines through Kmart or, you know, the equivalent of Best Buy at that time, um, was suddenly selling a much more expensive machine that was better suited to be sold through, you know, um, more trained professional computer dealers. And Commodore just didn't have the infrastructure to really service uh, the machine so well or to promote it for that matter. And so um, one reason that the machine was, was, especially in its first couple of years, not as big a success as it could have been actually was this um, sort of 
poor fit aspect um, with the Commodore culture. So how would you describe the Amiga user community? I would say that you probably know nothing about Devotion if you haven't met some Amiga users. Uh, there is just something about this machine, and this has been true from the time that it was introduced uh, right up until today, that it just inspires love and devotion. Um, people, will just, people will just go through a wall for this machine. And there were many, many companies that, sir, that stayed with the Amiga, even though there were many, many opportunities to make more money and to serve bigger markets outside of that relatively small computing niche that was the Amiga. But um, it's, just, it's just a machine that people absolutely love. And the user community that grew up around this machine um, was just incredibly vibrant. I mean, you know, that's probably 80 or 90 percent of what the book is about. It's not about Commodore. It's about what people did with this technology. And the, th the places that they took it really surprised even the people that had created the machine in the first place. Um, for instance, just a quick example, uh, the machine had this special mode called HAM mode. Uh, it actually stands for hold and modify. And it created the possibility to display up to 4,096 colors on the screen at one time rather than having to pick from a limited subset of the available colors. And at the time that this mode was created, um, Jay Miner, the designer of the machine, thought it was just kind of a lark. And um, he actually planned for quite a, quite a long time to take ham mode out of the machine because he said, well, what is it really good for? And the reason that he wasn't sure what it was good for is because it came with a lot of restrictions. The biggest one was that you could not do abrupt color transitions. So you could not go from, say, a white pixel to a black pixel side by side. You would have to transition through a couple of shades of gray to get to black. And so Jay Miner said, well... With, with as difficult as that is going to be to program and to work with, what is the use of having it? Well, what happened was that a company called NewTek came along, which I, I devote a whole chapter in the book to this company, and they said, well, that would be perfect for digitizing pictures, for showing photographic images on the screen. Because if you look at a photograph, you'll quickly notice that most photographs are made up not of these sharp edges, these sharp color transitions, but of gradual blending of shades from one color to the next color. So ham mode is, is not a problem for that. It will work perfectly. And so NewTek ended up developing the first computer digitizer that would let you take a picture and look at it on your computer screen and you would see a, a photograph that looked, ex I won't say that there was no loss of fidelity, of course there was, given the technology, but it looked very good, and it looked very presentable, and it was nothing that um, you would be, you would say, oh, you know, that looks, what is that, or, or that looks awfully grainy there, or, you know, why is that so blurry? It looked, it looked good, and so... Right there you have the forerunner of 
the digital camera or possibly the camera on your phone that you're carrying around today. So, And that's just one story of the places that the users actually did take the Amiga. So is there a URL people can go to to get the Amiga experience that you write about in your book? Uh, yeah, there certainly is. Um, one thing that... Actually, Nick Montfort, um, the, one of the series editors for Platform Studies, one thing that he said to me when I was first just discussing the proposal for this book with him was that um, you can really do this study in a new way, that you can offer uh, people who are working in this field a new way to approach platform studies or just uh, to approach this type of study. And um, he essentially said, by going, instead of just relying on other sources and then maybe, you know, loading up the an emulator or booting a game on your Amiga from time to time just to see, oh, what does that look like? Uh, you can really dig deep into the hardware uh, using the technology that we have available now. We have very good Amiga emulation technology, luckily. And that was something that really guided me throughout the writing of the book. And so when the book was done, that's something that I really wanted to kind of share with the people who will read the book to make it more of an interactive experience to say, you know, yes, you can read the book and you can say, oh, I'm, I know about the Amiga now. That's great. I'll move on with my life. But you can also make it sort of an interactive experience and really um, experience some of these things that I'm talking about along with me. The website that people can visit is Amiga dot feelfree.net that's amiga dot f as in fox i as in ian l as in larry f as in fox r as in red e as in edgar dot net jimmy maher the author of the future was here the commodore amiga thanks so much for being on the mit press podcast today okay thank you for more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget you can find the MIT Press on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash mitpress, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at MIT Press. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press podcast. Copyright 2012, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.